0: hello and welcome to writing the coast i'm your host megan cole writing the coast is the official podcast of the bc and yukon book prizes on writing the coast i help you get acquainted with the authors and illustrators whose books make up our annual shortlist Before we get to our featured author for this episode, I wanted to take a minute to get you pumped up for our gala. While we're disappointed we won't be able to celebrate with the authors and illustrators in person this year, we are thrilled that an online gala means people can join us to cheer on the shortlisted authors and illustrators from wherever they are. And we want you to join us, because all the books that appear on the lists are amazing and special and deserve so much love and celebration. So when is our gala? It's September 19th, and you can find out more information on our website, bcukonbookprizes.com. Okay, on to the goods of our episode. My interview with Hazel Jane Plant, author of Little Blue Encyclopedia for Vivian. It's hard to know how to describe Little Blue Encyclopedia for Vivian. It's experimental, fun, and emotional. The book has been described as a love letter, saturated with grief and desire. In the wake of Vivian's death, our narrator searches for a way to process her feelings and pay tribute to her friend. She does this through something Vivian loved, the TV show Little Blue. Now I'm warning you. If you haven't read Little Blue Encyclopedia for Vivian, you'll likely find yourself googling some of the tidbits Hazel weaves into the story. They seem so real, so plausible, that you even believe for a second that you missed when Little Blue aired on TV. Little Blue Encyclopedia for Vivian is nominated for the Jim Diva Prize for Writing that Provokes, and Hazel starts us off with a reading from her book.
1: So I'm going to read um, two brief extracts from my novel, Little Blue Encyclopedia for Vivian. Uh, the first one is fairly early in the book. And then the second one is, um, is quite a bit later in the book. After a few months of emptiness and anger, I felt the urge to sift through the boxes in my closet that held remnants of Vivian. The first box I opened contained a tailored houndstooth trench coat that she adored. I tried it on. It was a little snug, but I felt good in it. Standing in the coat, I felt so intensely that Vivian was still alive somehow. I imagined a hummingbird trapped inside my heart, its tiny wings vibrating against my ribcage. I imagined it quivering and expanding and finally folding in on itself. I put my hands in the coat pockets where I found an old tube of lip gloss. Viv was a fiend for lip gloss. Beneath the trench coat, the box held a small collection of albums, books, and DVDs. I removed an album that I recognized and put it on my turntable, Different Class by Pulp. A year or so ago, Vivian had sung its opening song, Miss Shapes at karaoke. She couldn't really sing, but she was mesmerizing and impassioned and sang to our table, which was surrounded by half a dozen trans women. It felt like she was singing a defiant anthem that written specifically for us. I was astounded how easily she could carry the room, even if she couldn't carry a tune. When the song ended, she came back to our table, spent and smiling. Holy fuck, do I love all of you, she said. She went around and gave each of us a long, slow hug. That may have been the night I realized how much I loved her. And then I'm going to skip ahead um, about 100 or so pages to a much later section. Um, I will say in advance that there is some, uh, it includes some sex. I don't know if that is a uh, content warning or if that's a promise. Um, <laughs> It's very consensual, Um, yeah, consensual kind of delicious sex, so I I think it'll be okay. I recently went to an art installation called Defeated Umbrellas that Viv would have loved. The entire second floor of the art gallery was covered in broken, abandoned umbrellas, thousands and thousands of abandoned umbrellas. In several places, umbrellas were arranged in heaps that were taller than me. When you entered, the lights were dim and the umbrellas were all black. As you walked along a winding path, the umbrellas gradually shifted color, becoming lighter and brighter, until you found yourself in an expanse of damaged, dazzling red umbrellas. With my store discount, I once bought Viv an umbrella with a cherry blossom design. When her sister Dot and I were cleaning out her apartment, we found the umbrella. It had a couple of broken ribs, And I wondered if this was the umbrella she'd held above a lover during a torrential downpour on a park bench one night. The rain fell in sheets while she held the umbrella and her lover fucked her in the darkness. She told me the umbrella she was holding had been damaged by the wind. She didn't talk about most of the sex she was having, but she couldn't resist this time. I got so fucking wet, she said. You have no idea. Drenched as fuck, fucked as fuck. It was incredible. Now I wish Viv had told me which park bench along the seawall she'd been on that night. Maybe I could raise money to buy a plaque for it. In loving memory of Vivian Close, who experienced one of the best fucks of her life during a rainstorm on this bench, she is missed.
0: Thank you so much. That is yeah. one of the most delicious sex scenes I think I've ever read in a book.
1: <laughs> really? I think it's like, I was talking to somebody else and they were talking about how tame they thought my book was. And I was like, that's kind of fair. I don't know. It doesn't really get explicit or anything like that, but it's very enjoyable. It's very celebratory.
0: Yes. I think that there's something to be said about sex scenes that leave something to the imagination. Like, I think that's what makes that one so delicious is like, it gives just enough to make you kind of imagine what that would have been like. I appreciate that. Yeah.
1: It's a fun one to read. This is a fun book to read at launches when we actually had launches back in the day.
0: It's a fun book to read as a reader. I actually picked your book up when I was in Toronto uh, in January before I'd appeared on the shortlist. I was drawn to it when I went to another story bookstore. I pulled it off the shelf and bought it and brought it home and I was just delighted to be able to read it and now to talk to you about it. Maybe we'll start with kind of, I guess, a more crafty kind of question, but I'm curious about how you decided on the structure of this story, because we read a little bit about how Zelda finds her way to writing this story, but I'm curious how you found your way to writing this story.
1: Yeah, that's a good question, and it's one of those ones that I have definitely pondered more since it's come out into the world. Um, because it kind of came from a couple of different strains of writing, I guess. One thing was, several years ago, I was trying to write, you know, those little 33 and a third books that are about a very specific record album, or, like, there are some BFI ones. Like, for example, Salman Rushdie wrote a little BFI book about Wizard of Oz, and a lot of it also, like, factored his life factors into it, the production of the film, all of those kind of things. So I was thinking of those and I really tend to tilt towards those. Like I really love those kind of books that just focus on one specific piece of art. And I was really, uh, I became enamored with this idea of writing something about a show that doesn't exist. Right. So I came up with this show and the characters started tumbling out and I worked on it for like, over a year maybe a couple of years and I would like come up with covers like criterion edition style covers and stuff like I went a little bit too extreme because I tend to love those kind of things like when they were asking for some like design uh, input around the cover of my book criterion was definitely one of the things I pointed to where it was like I really like the simple the kind of elegant but evocative kind of covers or whatever so I spent a couple of years doing that and then at the same time I was kind of like why am I spending so much time on the show that doesn't exist and talking <laughs> about actors who don't exist and coming up with their oeuvre of other films they've appeared in that also don't exist. But some of the actors actually are in the real world, like Padma Lakshmi is someone who's in here. One of the things I cut out was actually Salman Rushdie on the set with
0: her, <laughs>
1: <laughs> where this character was talking about how he was a joker and poured like itching powder on like, the I don't know, toilet bowl or whatever. I don't know, it was just weird stuff like that. And I was like, after a couple of years, I was like, am I just wasting my time? Like, why am I doing this, right? So I kind of put that story aside a little bit and started working on this other story uh, that was kind of bubbling up about these two um, these two trans women who often, from my experience anyway, being being a trans woman, we often have pretty interesting and complicated and kind of messy relationships often. And maybe there's some sort of mentorship that's that's taking place or something like that, that's spoken, unspoken, et cetera. Um, Yeah. Things just tend to be fairly complicated and and messy. Um, So I started writing that and then it's kind of, I think at some point in this book here, I talk about this like peanut butter and jelly or chocolate and peanut butter kind of thing where these two things come together and it's like, Oh, maybe that's a way of doing this because I've been mostly doing kind of constraint-based writing for the last maybe like decade or so, at least, um, of coming up with um, a very specific constraint that makes the writing harder. But when it's done well, I think it can really illuminate things and can be really exciting. And it takes me in different directions than I would ever go. Like I wouldn't have thought I would write a novel in the format of an encyclopedia. But that was also really exciting to me because I was like, I haven't really seen that. How can I kind of toggle between these two things? and have the one thing reflect the other and have it feel like a novel at the same time and make it dense because there is a density to the TV series, but then also an airiness, like literally Rice Krispie squares were like one of my like visuals for like writing this. I was like, I want it to be dense, but I also want it to have air and the illustrations I think add to the air and each entry only happens on the uh, recto page I guess the right hand side page or whatever so there is some blank space in there too it's like a pretty short novel that covers a lot of territory I think Um, so that was yeah so that's kind of the origin story of that I think really and then I was like trying to write something that I just wanted to be in the world I gave up on the idea I was like maybe there's a publisher for this thing, maybe there isn't. I'm just going to write the thing that I wish existed and not be worried about whether other people are going to get it to write a thing that nobody ever has to read. And I think that allowed me to go to areas that I wouldn't have gone to otherwise. I would have been like, this is just too damn weird. Or, you know, so many things in my book, I think that people have commented on to me are things where I was just like, is that too much? And then I was like, I'm just going to put it in because it's writing a book, right? I can cut it later and so um, I try to give myself a lot of license in that area, too. Hopefully that's, does that answer your question? Yeah,
0: it definitely does, and it kind of, like, you, you've you touched on a lot of things that I, I want to ask you more about, which is a great way to start this. Um, I, I have to kind of touch on Chase Abernathy and all these kind of things, like you said, going in to these creations of things that were made up but then you layer it with these true things like Padma Lakshmi which is like it created this really interesting world to live in as I was reading it because I was always wondering what was real and what wasn't real because I as I told you in my email I definitely went looking for an illustrated history of my pants because I was going to buy it if it existed I had imagined it I, I want it to exist But I want to know how you navigated those elements of the the real and the fantasy and what you chose to kind of create and what you left to the real world.
1: Yeah, that one, that's a good question. And it's one of those things that I find myself increasingly navigating, like I'm working on another book right now, and I wanted there to be nothing from the real world in it. I just wanted to invent it all. But I find that really hard to do, because I feel like it's nice to have those bearings of things of where you're mixing the things that you're inventing with the things that actually exist in the real world. Um, So back up for one second, and then I'll talk about those specific things. Like one of the touch points for me with like coming up with things that don't exist is this museum that's in Los Angeles called the Museum of Jurassic Technology. There's a really wonderful book about it by Lawrence uh, Weschler, who's who's a nonfiction writer who I really adore, who writes a lot of specifically about art and has been really influential to me in lots of ways. There's a character in my book called Wren, and that's like a short version of Warren Spechler's name, like his fingerprints are kind of all over this. But, but that museum, what it does, the Museum of Jurassic Technology, is it really blends this idea of things that actually exist in the real world, like a parasite that behaves in a way that sounds like it must be made up or it takes over the brain of another creature when it infects it and gets it to do specific things, which just sounds made up, but actually it's the real thing. And then other things that sound plausible enough that you're like, oh, that probably happened where this opera singer went to this part of the world and had this weird coincidence that happened and it's actually in fact made up, right? Like um, this kind of invented, you know, yeah. So these, it kind of like blurs the lines between those two things. And I find there's some, uh, I don't know, there's space in there to play and there's space in there to do things and invent things that like, I'm never going to be a visual artist but I came up with a bunch of works by Chase Abernathy and I really wish they existed in the real world as well. And I wish the book an Illustrated History of My Pants also existed, which is this book that Chase Abernathy, who's this like trans artist, this trans mask artist out of Nova Scotia, who, um, who publishes this book that has a number of images of um, pairs of pants that chases own before and writes a little bit about it and some of it's pretty sexual and things like that as well and there's kind of a delight i think in there and like a joy i kind of wanted to be able to balance this idea of like joy and delight with sadness because it is a book about grief and i remember talking to another writer and i said i think it's like a book about it's it's grief is kind of one of the main focal points but i tried to stuff as much joy as i possibly could into it because i think you you have to have those things together i think we have to have things that kind of keep us going so for me as a writer like there was just a lot of joy in like making stuff like that out making up someone's like oeuvre and like making up certain actors who were in there and other things they have appeared in like there's this actor's memoir in there where he talks about working on a film called James Bong with uh that's co-written by like Seth Rogen and I'm like that movie should totally fucking exist um You know, like that kind of stuff. I just find it's really fun. And then people, I've heard from many people who've like looked things up and they're like, I thought this was a real thing and I'm kind of disappointed or I thought Little Blue was an actual television series and I was totally down to watch it this weekend and now I can't. But I think my response to some of that is like, in a way you kind of conjured it, right? Like we did a thing together where I kind of suggested enough and you filled in a bunch of the space, right? So I kind of like, I like that as well. Um, Yeah.
0: Yeah, I ended up like after I after I googled Chase Abernathy, I was like, you know what? I need to stop googling and just like just live in the book and it's real while I'm in the book, and that's what matters.
1: I will also say that Metonymy, one of the first things they asked me when they were uh, when they were excited to publish my book was, can you give us a list of all the stuff in your book that exists in the real world? It will make fact checking a lot easier. <laughs> So yeah, they don't have to go down all of those rabbit holes of like, does this band exist? Doesn't it? What's the song you're quoting? Is it like an actual, that's not on the internet, which doesn't mean it doesn't
0: exist. Yeah, yeah. I I think something that that I really enjoyed about this book, too, is that it kind of captured this space that's created by TV and pop culture where it's like this kind of shared history. Um, I remember there being shows that I watched with friends and like we talk about them now and it's like it totally captures this time and place that we were all living in. And I'm curious if there was a show that was Little Blue for you.
1: Oh, That's a good question. Yeah. I mean, I do think TV series have this shared space for sure. Like we don't always know that somebody else has read a given novel or music. I don't know. Music is a trickier one to talk about because it doesn't really have characters in it. Whereas like many times I'll be on the bus and I'll hear somebody like talking to somebody about, oh, I'm rewatching Grey's Anatomy for the third time or whatever. And it's like, and you immediately have this kind of almost shorthand um particularly with certain kind of more cult television series and things like that i think i think that happens a lot i can i can name a couple of shows um that are that are precursors i think of little blue that would have come out years before and would have influenced little blue um one of them is twin peaks uh which i've definitely seen a number of people kind of reference in reviews and things like that i think morgan M. page who is a um trans writer and force of nature uh, and podcaster who I deeply respect, I think in a review said something along the lines of like, Little Blue is like Twin Peaks without the menace. And I think it's kind of like that. It has a little bit of dark stuff, but it doesn't have the overarching menace of Twin Peaks, which gets really incredibly dark. So that's definitely one of those series, I think, that's like that, that like Little Blue takes place in a very specific setting, right? Um, and has these really kind of eccentric characters and has kind of weird shit that happens. Um, but also like over time you develop a relationship and you care about these characters, right? So that's kind of part of it I think for me too is I definitely do see people who And I think a friend of mine shared something recently about, like, folks who have more anxiety tend to re-watch television series. And I think the same thing would be true for folks, you know, mental health issues in general. Because, like, one of the things a television series affords you is, I think, this kind of, like, connection and almost this sort of, like, phantom community in a way where you're kind of, like, part of, you know, the city, like, you know, of of this uh, area, you know, the characters in Twin Peaks are kind of, like, people who are maybe like friends of yours and it's like oh this character is very bumbling and very like lovable another tv series would be uh northern exposure which also came out around the exact same time as twin peaks and is doing something very similar but very different tone right like it doesn't have the darkness but it has the weirdness and it has the kind of pacific northwest i would say even though that's set in alaska it was also filmed in washington state both of them are kind of filmed around that area but it's also like isolated from the rest of the world right like little blue is an island called little blue island um and so i think you have that kind of thing where things develop differently on an island right like i was raised on an island i grew up on vancouver island um and and it's kind of cut off from the from the mainland and you see that on like the gulf islands and things like that which is where little blue is kind of set as one of the gulf islands a fictional gulf island (laughs) but but that's kind of where where it's set. So definitely I had those, I had those series and I still, when I see folks, that's one of the questions I feel like nowadays, especially during like the, the pandemic and before the pandemic is like, what are you watching?
0: Yeah. If we've, I've asked that question of friends a lot. Like what are you guys watching right now? And, and I I end up in my own writing, I reference TV shows that I watched, like Dawson's Creek and Felicity, or kind of those like, teen dramas that I watched as a teenager, and they totally represent a certain period in time. And when I watch them, it immediately takes me back to that place.
1: Yeah, totally. I think it's a time capsule in a lot of ways, right? I feel like there's something in a reference maybe later in the book that talks about this kind of like time machine of being able to like, revisit television series or music is a thing that plays in here quite a bit specifically the band suede um where i think like you know and sometimes that's really deeply reflective of who a person is right like i remember writing and there is a scene where uh the character of vivian who's this very kind of like charismatic and effervescent character says about the beatles like i guess they're okay but they're no suede and then i remember sitting with that and going like who the fuck says that? And then I revisited Sweat, who I haven't listened to in a long time. And I was like, oh, all of their music is is super dramatic, very like, you know, uh, like a lot of stuff about drugs and sex and all this kind of stuff. And there's like a darkness there and this kind of androgyny and like, yeah, I don't know, kind of a queerness, even though I don't think any of the members identified as queer. But, you know, if a male singer is singing about kissing a boy in his room, oh no,
0: (laughs) Yeah, I loved all the music references and we've we've chatted about that on email as well. I I, I just love those things that like Zoe Whittle did this in Bottle Rocket Hearts too. There was these moments of like it just kind of even just the mention of a song adds this kind of auditory element to it without even hearing it, which I just love in writing.
1: Yeah, it, it, it takes you to a place, right? It does a thing really specifically and really quickly in the same way that I think some people say like, oh, sense will take you like a smell or whatever. Um, will take you to a certain time or remind you really deeply of a thing, and I think like often that stuff's imprinted on us, especially stuff that we heard when we were younger.
0: Yeah, yeah. You um, mentioned uh, in the beginning when you were talking about how this book came about, about um, the relationship between Vivian and Zelda, and I think one of the beautiful themes of this book, in addition to uh, the grief and the joy, as well, is this the way that we build community and connection. And I wondered it, why it was important to engage with those themes in this book.
1: Yeah, I mean, community and connection, like, why does it matter?
0: <laughs> I think we've learned a lot about why it matters eh, in the last few months.
1: The pandemic, I, I think, like, I had a friend recently uh, who I've become a, a pen pal with, which is, like, one of those, like, delightful things during a pandemic is, like, hey, why don't we exchange letters? Okay, great. And one of the things that she asked me is uh, what has this pandemic taught you about yourself and the world you want to make, you know? And I think those are some real world questions that we're grappling with. Right. And I think some of those things do revolve around things like community, right? Like during this pandemic, like who, who is there, right? Like who is in your circle? Like I think of like the circle and the bubble as very different things. My bubble is incredibly small, but like, I have a lot of people who, we're reaching out to each other and checking in with each other. And I feel quite connected to a lot of folks. Um, I think particularly for folks who are marginalized, you know, thinking of like trans folks, broadly um, trans women specifically, I think oftentimes, I don't know, we have, we have complicated relationships and relationships that are sometimes very messy and sometimes very hard. Um, I don't know if you've read the book. Uh, I hope we choose love by Kai Cheng Tom. Um, I really adore Kai Cheng's work a lot and I think that book has a lot to say a lot more deep stuff to say about the relationships between um trans folks specifically trans women of color um and how and how they are treated in the world more broadly and within queer communities right so I think like For me, when I transitioned, definitely um, I didn't really have a huge number of, like, queer friends. I didn't know anybody who was trans around the time when I was, like, thinking about this, which made it, like, a deeply scary thing, which is yet another reason I think I kind of tilted towards, like, the idea of writing a novel that really foregrounded trans characters is, like, I didn't see a lot of great representations. To be honest, like, media representations, like, really, like, I remember saying to my partner at the time, I was like, one thing I know is I never want to transition, Right. Like I said, that's super early on. And she was the one who was like, mm, I don't know that you should necessarily like forget about this idea. It might be something that you need to do or you need to really deeply consider. Um, but I think like those and power dynamics within those relationships sometimes where somebody maybe, you know, is in a position of like having a lot more power or like needs a relationship less, for example, as I think we see in the relationship between, um, Zelda and Vivian. Um, one of those two people has a lot of other has a lot of connections, and one of those two people is much shyer and more kind of interpreted and finds it really hard um, to make friends. I think there's a section in there where she talks about like the magic of friendship and how like, she doesn't know how to. That's not a magic she has control over, right? And I definitely have felt that way before myself. And I think it's it's one of those kind of things where like yeah, I just kind of wanted to be able to portray a relationship that's not super straightforward even, you know, like there's maybe mentorship that's going on there, but it's not really stated. And I think Vivian is contributing a huge amount to, uh, to Zelda's life. It's it's interesting using, talking about Zelda by her name, because the name <laughs> doesn't really come in until later. And I've had people say, is that the narrator's name? Um, I I know I
0: wondered if I should mention it if it's like a spoiler for me to even say it in the interview because it comes so late in the book
1: I don't I don't really think so I don't I I mean yeah I mean as far as spoilers go like I don't know I did a I did a little uh, reading last night and I read from a section that talks about how Vivian did or didn't die right and I don't think that's and I've seen people in reviews talk about it and I don't think it's it's a spoiler, like, I, I think, I think you'll still get stuff out of the book. Yeah. <laughs> like, if the big thing you're getting is like, oh, shit, that's the narrator's name. I didn't do a good job.
0: <laughs> it's funny, because I, once I got to that part, I'm like, oh, I didn't know her name. Like, it didn't even dawn on me that I didn't mm-hmm. know the narrator's name. Yeah. Some
1: of that stuff that we reveal and withhold, I think, is interesting. Like, I was chatting with a friend recently, another writer whose work I deeply admire, and I don't think I describe what any of the characters look like in here like maybe broadly like body type or something like that in like half a sentence or whatever, that kind of thing, like really quickly, no genitals are mentioned at all. Somebody was talking to recently was like, there's a lot about assholes in there. And I was like, isn't that something we all have? I don't know. I could be wrong. It'd be hard to be a human being without an ass. But I don't. I don't think it really says whether somebody has had any sort of like Medical intervention on like genitals or whatever, right? Like when I'm describing the sex that's happening there on the park bench at the seawall, you don't know. You don't know how it is that Vivian is being penetrated. I've never talked about that scene in that way before, <laughs> but but I think that's important to me in a way. For this book, it was important. I think for my next book, I'm doing a very different thing. Um, but for this book here, I didn't want that. I didn't want that to be an important thing.
0: Yeah. Well, and it, it really came across that the heart of the story was, was the relationships and the, the journey that these characters go on together. And one of the relationships I really loved was the one between Dot and Zelda, too, which was so beautiful as they were grieving together.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think like, yeah, that's the thing is like connection and community and networks and all of these kind of things. It's very hard to live in the world as an isolated individual right? It's super hard. Like I I grew up in the days before the internet existed. And like when I think back on when I first moved out on my own, I didn't really have a lot of good friends. And I wasn't really, I didn't, I was ill-equipped to be able to make really good friendships. And there's a vulnerability there to doing that, right? So when you do have people in your life who get you in different ways, um, that's kind of invaluable, I think, right? And people who are able to kind of be like open and vulnerable and I think those are two different things right like being vulnerable I think necessarily means there's you could possibly be hurt quite deeply whereas being open doesn't necessarily like um you're not offering yourself up I think in the same ways maybe but I think there's a real value in that and I, I don't know like I as far as this pandemic goes like I don't think I could have really weathered it without having like a lot of people who I care about who also care about me you know, like there were weeks when I just stayed indoors and I would go out once a week and I didn't see anybody in person for a long time. That really did a number on me. Yeah. yeah. I remember like weeping one day and I literally said to somebody, I was like, I feel like I've cried so much. It's like there's a door here and like my tears are not gonna fucking wash it away. Like I need <laughs> I need a different strategy, you know, I need to be open and to like let folks know what's going on and to check in with people and things like
0: that. Yeah. Another thing I I wanted to chat with you about was the illustrations um, because they are such a beautiful addition to the book. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about them. And also, was it your intention to include them from the beginning?
1: Yeah, those are all good questions. And I uh, I think when I was first writing it, I didn't necessarily have the idea of illustrations in it. I think that kind of came in later. And I think it kind of came in as... I started thinking more and more deeply about what the structure of the book would look like and aesthetically how the book would be in the world. Because those are things that I, you know, I I was going to say they're shallow, but I don't think they're shallow at all. I think those things really deeply matter. You know, I I think like, yeah, I mean, in a way I would say like, yeah, this book is very much a love letter to art, broadly writ, um, including visual art, including um, pop culture, music, all, all of these kind of things. Um, and also to trans femmes, I would say, right? It's kind of a love letter to those two things. And I started feeling like, oh, art makes a lot of sense because there are references to her brother who has these like artistic abilities. And then I found myself writing a scene of where she's like talking to a friend of hers who's going to illustrate this encyclopedia for her. And the encyclopedia, I don't think this is much of a spoiler either, but one of the reasons why this book is in the format of an encyclopedia is there was this children's encyclopedia that was deeply important to Vivian. And um it was like one of the only things from her childhood that she kept. And so I had this idea and I floated it past metonymy. I was like, yeah, so you're going to read the, f- when I sent them the full draft, I was just, just FYI, I'm kind of thinking about illustrations, 26 illustrations, one for each of the sections. And so the illustrations in this book are actually done by, um, Jana Younghoi, who I think you've actually interviewed before, because she was nominated a couple of times for um, BC and Yukon Book Prizes for poetry. She's a brilliant poet. Um, She also happens to be very talented artistically with with, uh, being able to to do illustrations. And I have known her for a good 15 plus years. She's my best friend, I would say. Uh, So, yeah, so I got Metonymy to contract her. And she made these illustrations. Working with her was great because I feel like when you know someone that well, it's easy to say like, mm, let's make the ghost a little less, let's take a bit of the frown out of the ghost. Like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So she definitely wanted to know what I wanted illustrations of, but I feel like also it's another one of those things that breaks up the text, A text that can be quite heavy, right? Um, even though I think there's a lot of joy in it, but like, yeah, I mean, for example, this um this cat. I know this cat. It's a very specific cat in my life. <laughs> and so being able to have things like that in the book just really uh, I don't know. It it just it it feels like a uh it, it adds an extra depth to it, I think, in a way. Like it does, besides joy and besides like this kind of aesthetics, and besides like giving it space, I think it does an additional thing. Like it feels like another layer and I really care about work that's trying to do a few different things at once. I don't know that I'm going to publish all that many books so it's nice to be able to write a book and then be like it's kind of like three books. It's It's my third book and it's the story of these trans women and it's also got illustrations in it that were commissioned by my best friend.
0: Yeah no the the illustrations were great and I just loved that they they weren't necessarily the things that you would connect with the letter which I again created this space because it made me stop and think about it for a little bit before I dove into the next section.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it, I tried to make them also, they're related to either uh, the story of Vivian and Zelda um, or the television series or something like that. But some of them, I think like this middle finger for the letter F, which I would say is fuck you, but I know on Jen, it was like finger. <laughs>
0: I, I loved the the middle figure. That was one of my favorites. I guess my last question for you is, uh, you've been kind of hinting at what you're working on now, but uh, if you're sharing, I would love to hear a bit more about what you're working on.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting uh, situation because when I actually did a book tour before, that was one of those questions that people often asked in person at Q&As or it was a question that people would ask in like interviews when I would get emailed questions or do like a live chat kind of interview or whatever. And my answer then was profoundly different than it is now at that time. I was like, all I want to do is collaborate with people. <laughs> like I wanted to like do a whole bunch of different collaborations, some of which have happened, right? Like I'm in a band or whatever, and we're doing songs that are actually related to my next novel. So my next um, next book I work on actually turned out to be a novel and I started, it started kind of bubbling up towards the start of this year I sent off an extract to a journal recently after I had a couple of people read it and I was very feeling very tender about it cause I'm still writing it. Right. So you don't want to hear that the thing you're working on totally sucks. But the thing I'm working on right now is kind of, I'm trying to think of how I can talk about it broadly enough, but specifically enough that it makes sense. So it's kind of, I guess, two novellas from the same narrator at different points in their life, 20 plus years apart from those two. So it's a trans character and in the second half this person has in fact transitioned and so the way they're thinking about their body is pretty different between those two that's definitely one of those things I find myself thinking about so I think it's it's a book that's about aging is one of the things about it's definitely about art as well in the second half this person is this kind of like semi-famous trans rock star which has been like really fun to write because I was thinking the last few days when I've been talking to people about just like the weirdness of being in the world and being deeply wrapped up in this work of fiction, even though I'm only writing it for maybe like an hour, hour and a half a day or something like that more on the weekends. But it's kind of like, there's this additional, like almost like augmented reality layer, or kind of like this, like, and this narrator is profoundly confident, which is actually really interesting being out in the world and being like, oh, maybe this is a part of me. Maybe this is a way I am able to, if I want to, inhabit the world, right? So I will kind of see things and be like, oh, that's a thing that might play into this play into this book here. So yeah, it's a book, it has a lot more sex in it than, than um, Little Blue has, um, and it's a lot more explicit. And um, like I just wrote like a really incredibly long sex scene that I think is doing something that I don't see other books doing, right? Um, so that's kind of what I'm trying to do now is kind of like to write stuff that's really singular, like if I was to see Little Blue Encyclopedia in the store and I picked it up, I would be like, how the fuck did I not write this book? It must be my doppelganger. This person needs to be my best friend um, because so much of this is the way that I think. Um, so, yeah, it's these two novellas that have, like, structures that are kind of overlapping in a way, thinking of constraints and repetition and, yeah, things like aging and healing and trauma and celebratory sex. I don't know. All of these things are like, honestly, like, I keep thinking I need to write an article called, like, The Value of Writing Smut During a Pandemic, because it's helpful, I think. I don't know. Because you can't really have conversations or even, I don't know, touching people. The fact that kissing is, like, really high risk is wild,
0: Well, I think even in BC, when we got those, those new guidelines for how to have sex and everyone heard, some people heard about glory holes for the first time in their lives was really interesting.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it definitely came up on a few dates I was on, even before that, because New York City had mentioned glory holes, uh, you know, a while ago or whatever. And people were like, why glory holes? (laughs) Yeah, so so that's like a little bit about this, this book that I'm working on. I'm super excited about it. It has songs that appear in it, songs that don't exist out in the real world that I'm hoping when this is released, maybe to release like an EP. Because I think these songs are actually pretty good. Like that's what I did for years before I actually wrote fiction was I wrote songs and sent them out into the world and tried
0: to get a record deal. Thanks so much to Hazel for being on Writing the Coast. And thanks as always, to you, our listeners, for tuning in and listening to these episodes. If you'd like to find out more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, visit our website, bcyukonbookprizes.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Bryony Penn whose book, A Year on the Wild Side, A West Coast Naturalist's Almanac, is nominated for the Roderick Haig-Brown Regional Prize. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.